Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, welcome, my friends, all of our wonderful book lovers and everybody who appreciates and loves literature. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio's Off the Shelf. It is such a wonderful sunny day here, Saturday, April the 9th, in 2011. I want to thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. Please run and get a friend, a family member, somebody you know who loves books. Ask them to tune in to Off the Shelf right now. They can do it over the radio. They can do it if they have a mobile device. They can dial in and tune in to today's show just by dialing 347-994-3490. They can come into the chat room. There's so many ways that you can tune in and connect and listen to today's show. I'm still waiting for our special guest to join us, but going to continue to move forward. I'm your host, Denise Turney. For those of you, if this is your first time tuning in, I know we have many loyal listeners. And to our loyal listeners, thank you. I so appreciate you. You have no idea how much. But for those who are tuning in for the first time, I want to introduce myself. I'm your host, Denise Turney, and I'm coming to you live from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They call this the city of brotherly love. And again, I thank you. Thank you for your support. Please don't let another day pass before you pick up a copy of Long Walk Up. I'm telling you, this book is incredibly powerful and moving. And this is words coming from readers who have read the book. It's my latest. I'm working on a new book even now. But these comments that I'm making are are coming from people who read the book. Some of them uh, are major players in the media. And these are people who are saying themselves, this is a powerfully moving, uplifting, encouraging book that if you – wonder if you can achieve your dreams, if you wonder if it's worth it to keep moving forward, you read Long Walk Up, and you will get that second win. It's a story about a little girl in East Africa. She's orphaned after her mother passes away from malaria, and she has a, a long, hard road to travel uh, from six years old to where to reach her destiny. And I'm thinking about people like uh, uh, Harriet Tubman, type things that Joan of Arc accomplished. This woman goes on to become Africa's first woman president. This is a book you just have to have to get. You need to bless yourself with this book. And you can get a copy of Long Walk Up today by visiting www.chistel.com. You can also pick up a copy of Long Walk Up at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Border, Walmart, any bookstore. If you don't see it on the bookstore shelves, just ask the clerk for it. Just walk up to the clerk, say you want to order a copy of Long Walk Up by Denise Turney, and they can get a copy for you because it's carried by the largest book distributor distributors in the world. And I'm still waiting for our special guest to dial in. I, 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 this has happened a, a couple of times, not often before, but I always say I never know what's going on in someone else's life. I had one guest who came on once a few minutes late, but she had told me that she got a flat tire. She was traveling and she had a flat tire. And so she had to take care of that on the side of the highway. And then she was able to dial in. So I, I never know what's going on in a guest's life uh, to, might cause them to have to dial in late or possibly not even be able to dial in at all. I do hope that our special guest can make it today. Uh, uh, just to give you an introduction on her, she, she her name is Patty Lacey. She is a graduate of Baylor University, and she's from uh, Heart, she's a former Heartland Community College uh, instructor, 
She's a wife and a mother, and she's the author of the books. If you go to her website, I, I really love her website and her book covers. Was one thing I want to talk to her about uh, when she dials into today's show. Uh, An Irish woman's tale, reclaiming Lily, what the Bayou saw, and the rhythm of secrets. And she's online. Uh, if you want to check her out online at p a t t i l a c y dot com. Again, that's p a t t i l a c y dot com. And I'm going to try to shoot her a quick. Email, even as I'm on uh, now, she did confirm that she was going to be on today's show. So, again, I'm not sure what's going on to cause her to be late dialing in to the show today. Um, I don't don't want to have blank space on the show either. (laughs) I'm trying to send her an email. Uh, Let's see. Let me, um, I'm trying to think of something. Uh, uh, for, for those of you, uh, the, the, the Romance Book Writers uh, Conference, I believe that is going on this weekend. One thing I've learned as a host of Off the Shelf, you got to be prepared for anything, anything and everything. Uh, I guess anybody who works in the media, uh, they have to be prepared for for. If a guest is not able to make it, you have to be prepared to keep that show going. Uh, uh, regardless of what you're doing, you have to be prepared to keep it moving. I'm, I'm going back out to her again. She did say she was definitely going to be here today. Um, to remind her to dial in to the day show. Um, even now. But the Romance Writers Conference is going on right now. Uh Okay, I just sent her a note, and I am back. Um, so the romance, the romance writers conference is going on, and that was two of two guests that we had on the last two weeks, and uh, uh, who are romance authors. But what they told me is actually they changed the name of it, and I forget the new name of the conference. It's in California this year, and they have about a thousand book lovers who come out, but they have major, major authors who attend the event who are uh, on, on the New York Times bestseller list and other bestseller lists. The, the, the promo material I was sent for the, for the interviews, I mean, that place was packed, and they move it to a different location every year. They do workshops. Uh, you can get your – if you've already bought a book by an author there, you can bring it. You don't have to buy another book. You can bring the book uh, to the event and have the author, uh, one of the authors sign sign a copy of the books. You can actually t- talk to the author. There's a chance that uh, people get to talk to best-selling authors that they – would not normally get get to do to talk to an, a best-selling New York Times best-selling author one-on-one. You can do that at this type of conference. But they, it started as a as a romance conference. I've not never gone to it, but I have heard about it. Uh, it started as a romance writers conference. Then it then it changed because now they do science fiction. They do uh, um, any type of genre mystery. Um, uh, thrillers, it, just about any type of uh, genre in the book industry, they now cover uh, those those uh, those genres, and they have those types of authors at the events now. And I'm not sure when that started. I do know it's 
it again uh, started as romance writers, and then it just moved and it expanded in, into um, t- they must step in other genres. And that was Pat Simmons. Uh, she was one of the authors, and Lisa Watson, and their ro- their romance authors. They came on and talked about the conference. They actually helped promote it. How they got involved with it. It was almost just something that one of them, uh, and I think it was Pat Simmons. She got started with it first, and then she reached out and tapped Lisa, which is how Lisa got her first book deal. Pat was at the conference. They, uh, she wanted to work on a new book, and the publisher said if you can, where they wanted it to be like an anthology type of a book, where if you could get a, a big name established author and then go get a new a new new author, somebody who's just coming on the scene, we'll cut the deal with you. And so she walked out of the room. And she saw Lisa Watson, and that's how uh, Lisa got her first book deal. So attending these writers' conferences is is good for for authors. It can help you to advance your career. Uh, and I'm, I'm I'm even as I'm on waiting for Patty Lacey, I'm going to poets and writers. I like to give our listeners, particularly our uh, listeners who want to get their writing careers going, and I know we have a lot of people who tune in who just love to read. I myself, I, I love to read myself. When I moved in October, I actually got rid of several of my books. I had so many books. Um, I just didn't bring them all with me. But I absolutely love, love, love to read. Poets and Writers is another good website. I'm actually on it right now for the authors and the readers who are tuning in to Off the Shelf. And, again, I thank you for staying with us as we wait for the, the guests to dial in it's www.pw.org. Again, that's www.pw.org. That's Poets and Writers. It's a, it's a very, very good literary magazine. They have uh, writers' conferences in there. You can find grants for writers in there. You can find awards. Uh, and some of these awards pay in the thousands of dollars that you can go and apply for and, and, and get your name out there and start getting your career going uh, as an author, again, as poets and writers. And I think Patty just dialed in. Let me connect her. Hi, is this Patty? Yes. Hi, Denise. Hi. We've been going about 10 minutes, and I was just going telling them about poets and writers always being prepared. <laughs> well, you know what? I have, on, I have on my daytimer 11 a.m., so I apologize for the confusion. I bet we're on no. different. I'm on Central, and I bet that I didn't get that message. So I thought I was oh, being oh. organized. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> no, no, thank you. Thank you for tuning in. We've One thing I say, uh, and again, thank you, when, when I've, I've been doing Off the Shelf now for about seven years, uh-huh. and I've learned to just go with the flow. I mean, I had a family emergency a couple of weeks ago, and I had to fly out of, out, out of state, and I, I said, should I go on with the show or not? And I decided to because I wanted to for the author. So I, I continued on with the show, and I just logged in via my laptop from my brother's house in Tennessee. And uh, I've had one guest who's had a flat tire on the way to the show. So you know, people's lives go on. Our lives go on. And so I'm as a guest, as a host, I'm always prepared to keep it moving and just give our listeners things that benefit their lives. So I was talking about poets and writers and a writer's conference. But since you are here and I have so many questions that I want to ask you, because I absolutely loved visiting your website and I gave our listeners the, uh, your URL for your website. So I want to introduce you again and then launch into the questions. 
So for those of you who are just tuning in or who have been here with us since 11 o'clock, again, and this is something you're going to hear me say so often, thank you. Our special guest today is author Patty Lacey. She is a graduate of Baylor University, and she is a former Heartland Community College teacher. She's a wife and mother, and she is the author of the books An Irish Woman's Tale, Reclaiming Lily, What the Bayou Saw, and the Rhythm of Secrets. And again, she's online at www.pattylacy.com, and that's spelled P-A-T-T-I-L-A-C-Y.com. Again, that's P-A-T-T-I-L-A-C-Y.com, pattylacy.com. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Patty. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm I'm looking forward to it after visiting your website and when I do the research work for each of our interviews, some of the book covers and some of the things I see at the website just get me excited mm-hmm. to connect with the author. I want to start by saying, and I was telling our listeners mm-hmm. earlier, the covers of your books, and I do recommend our listeners go over to your website so they can see what I'm talking about. The covers of your books are so eye-catching. And I don't usually lead an interview talking about book covers, <laughs> but after I went, went into your website, I was like, wow, did you design the book covers yourself? And if you didn't, were you involved in that design, the process of designing those book covers? You know, I was very blessed that Kriegel, the publisher of my first three books, allowed me to have input. And I think the readers would be excited to know that how Kriegel handles it is they send uh, three alternative book covers to me, and then we start brainstorming about which one I like, which one I don't like. And Kriegel actually also sends to about 50 people, uh, booksellers, stores, uh, other editors, the same covers and has the, have them say you know, which one they prefer and why. So it's kind of neat. They get the marketing side's opinion as well as just me as the author. And on, for example, The Rhythm of Secrets, there were three covers, and the first one made me cry. <laughs> I just opened it up, <laughs> and it had the profile of a woman uh, with her mainly just her um, kind of a vague profile with her tensed hands on the keyboard of a piano. The second is the one that was chosen for the book with modifications, which was a woman and then a Mardi Gras mask and, and the piano keys. The third one I instantly disliked because it it kind of made the woman look like a floozy, a flirt, and uh, this oh, okay. this was the pre-World War II period, so that's why I use that word floozy. <laughs> mm-hmm. But okay. I instantly disconnected with the character's uh, picture because I didn't feel like she represented my Sheba. And so um, we started dialoguing, and it was really cool to, um, you know, to develop it. And I really appreciated that about Kriegel. Some of the larger houses, like on my Reclaiming Lily, which will be out in October, it's much more um, driven by the publisher's desires. So a lot of uh, readers don't know that, that, you know, sometimes we authors have no say. Sometimes we have lots of say. Uh, If you self-publish, of course, you can can do it exactly how you would like. Right. Another friend of mine started out a book self-published, and it took off, and so she went with a larger house, uh, one of the top ten uh, publishing houses, and she they did a, they redesigned the book cover, and she hated it. I know it's it. a hard and pill to swallow. <laughs> she went back. She went back, and she she I think she she said on the next book 
she's no longer she's now with a different publishing house, but she she told him, you know, I want some input. I want some input uh, because it's the author people think of when they see the book. They don't think of the publisher. They think of the author. But, you know, Denise, what's interesting is that um, when I was, you know, chatting with my agent about this very question, uh, she told me even Stephen King doesn't get to choose his own covers. So it is kind of in um, the American public uh, publishing world anyway. It is kind of the prerogative of the publisher because in a way they do understand possibly better what will sell, you know, and what readers Mm -hmm. are looking for. They have marketing information that we don't have. But I'm kind of with you. I mean, it's too bad there couldn't have been more of a compromise with your friend, you know, to find something she was pleased Mm -hmm. with and and something that they felt like would sell. And uh, Mm -hmm. I hate it when I feel like that what will sell marginalizes the story, you know, and what... The, the image that pictures the story. And I think that's what we writers want. We want a reader mm. to pick up our book and go, wow, I have a feeling about this, you know, yes. and I'm drawn to this. And uh, sometimes mm-hmm. our ideas are different than those of the money people. Right. And and then they've been at it a long time. So they, again, I think but, but, but to allow input from both, but I, I, and, and I understand they're, they're marketing folks, especially the ones who've got the master degrees and 10 mm-hmm. or more years at it, they do know what, what what generally works, although they get surprised, they get surprised too. You you're a prolific writer, Patty, mm. and and um, when I interview authors who put out at least one book a year, because I generally publish a book once every three years, I tell myself I gotta get going. So that it's like a it's like a motivation for me. Your first published book was an Irish woman's tale, which was published in 2008 for off the shelf listeners. And when I first saw the book. Mm-hmm. I actually thought it was autobiographical when I first saw it in doing the research for the interview. But it turns out that it, this story, the novel tells the story of another woman, not not you, a story that was told to you when you lived in Indiana. Is that correct? You're exactly right. Why is the story's main character, a woman named Mary, why, Patty, is she trying to forget her past? Well, she just can't get over um that first memory, and that was what fascinated me about her story and others. And I went around and asked friends, and, and when I uh, went to Barnes and Noble, Noble signings and had time to chat with the listeners, I would ask them, "What is your first memory? Go back in your mental imagery and click back like an old movie, and what do you first remember?" And sadly, a lot of times, if those first memories of people were awful, in the case of my friend, it was people sitting around an oak table in a house on the Irish cliffs hollering, she's got to go. The little Egypt's got to go, which means idiot. And she just, you know, that was burned into her psyche. And so her whole life she was haunted, and and she went on to be betrayed kind of by two mothers, not just one dysfunctional mother, but two. And, you know, Mm. I think that's a very hard thing for someone to, to get over. And, um, you know, to be haunted by, literally, Uh, even though she was a Christian and is a Christian, um, she just struggled to get past this and um, to have some kind of, um, you know, settling of this. And so that theme kind of resonated me, and I started thinking, what if that were your first memory? And then you were shipped from the cliffs of the home, the only home you knew, and dumped into a wow. home in, in, around Chicago and 
a very dysfunctional setting and different from anything you ever knew. You know, how would you feel and what would you, you have turned out like? And so that's what I explore in an Irish woman's tale. Um, I think those of us that have had, um, you know, more pleasant first memories, we don't understand this phenomenon. Uh, until you start talking to people. Uh, I know I met a college professor whose first memory was her dad throwing her mother against a wall. And that has affected in in enormous ways her relationships, her life. And so I think that um, I was hoping to educate readers on why people might be, you know, hung up, quote, unquote, on certain issues. And I think it sometimes goes back to that first memory you have which mine was a very pleasant one, you know, playing and my mom and dad coming in and, you know, look at the cute little girl. And um, many people have similar, you know, comfort memories. Maybe it was a bad thing like falling or getting hurt, but someone comforted them. So, you know, how it's different when you have a a bad first memory. Now, that is the first time I've ever heard anybody need to mention a first memory. I know you taught. Did you did you teach or major in psychology? No. You're the first person I've ever heard. <laughs> I actually taught uh, earth science and English. But, um, you know, I think I am a thinker like a lot of writers and probably you too. And, and uh-huh. when the thing that, you know, stimulated that was not myself. It was um, my friend saying to me, what is your first memory? And oh, okay. I looked at her and said, I don't know. I've never really thought about it. And that seems to be a common response of people that don't have harrowing first memories. What role does Sally Stevens, now Mary is the one for our off-the-shelf listeners who she's trying to forget this horrible memory that she's got to go, she's got to go. And then they ship her off to Chicago where she doesn't know anybody. She's she's already coming from a dysfunctional family-type relationship, to go into another one. What role does Sally Stevens play in Mary's life, and does she meet uh, Mary meet Sally while she's in Chicago? No, actually they meet in Terre Haute. Um, you said um, that you thought this was autobiographical. It is very much um, for much of the book. My husband told an Irishman that we had taken to dinner this week uh, that he felt like the book was 90% uh, nonfiction. I basically just captured what happened <laughs> between um, Sally and Mary, which was me and my friend, um, in the novel and changed some things. But when we, uh, God yanked us from our warm southern porch and dumped us in Terre Haute, I like to say, in 1995, (laughs) I started a book discussion group. And it was after one of those meetings that this brave Irish woman hung around. And I thought she just wanted to nibble on all the southern living hors d'oeuvres I had made. To wow the, the new people, you know, since I was the new woman in town. and um, But she really wanted to ask me that question, what is your first memory? So wow. um, we met there in Terre Haute, and then ten years later, God whispered for me to write her story. And we ended up going back to Ireland, and we learned the truth of why her Irish mother had sent her away. And so it was a wonderful experience of um, me... Um, you know, being a little shy and thinking, I can't write. I had never written um, other than embarrassing poetry and maudlin love letters. <laughs> and wow. uh, my master's work, of course, in literature, you know, that that kind mm-hmm. of paper. But I had never thought I would be a writer. Um, I had read extensively, and I think that's a huge uh, plus for anyone I agree. who want to write. And <laughs> I think I started reading at four. I mean, you know, little bitty oh, words. Oh, my goodness. But 
you know, I think that um, God had given me that gift of parents that encouraged reading and, and, you know, sat with me when I tried to sound out letters. And, you know, so that helped me learn to write. But I kind of started crash courses in, in writing. And you say I'm prolific, but I think it's just kind of making up for lost time. And, and right now I'm kind of at a place where I'm struggling to write. So I think all of us writers you know, one way or the other, sooner or later, we'll have a period where we need to rest, you know, and take a break. Mm-hmm. But yeah. um, anyway, well, that first novel, you know, wasn't too hard because it was kind of just telling someone's story, right, getting it on paper. Wow. Well, th- that is really something. And, and then, again, if you probably were a little distanced from the story uh, 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 because it wasn't your story, but I, I think as authors we always put a little bit of ourselves. The material we write from... Like a musician, if they create a, 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 if they're not copying something somebody else did. Now a lot of people just do a, a, a they use use a, a, a template, some type of a formula type of a creating, whether it's music or a book. But a lot of people, not a lot, I would say fewer people create from what is within them, and that's what I call a true artist. And you you need to have experiences to be able to draw upon to continue to create things that are new or else you're going to just start duplicating work you've already done. But when you write, it's impossible to keep parts of yourself out because the material you're writing with actually is coming from within you, the author. I I, I love, I want to talk about your next book. Mm -hmm. The title of, and I love the title, What the Bayou Saw. Mm-hmm. When and where in Louisiana mm-hmm. does this story take? This is a title. Your titles are really, mm-hmm. intri- your book covers and your titles. When and where in Louisiana does what the Bayou Saw take place? Monroe, Louisiana. And I had lived in Monroe um, We when my family, we left Texas and uh, ended up in Monroe when I was in um, the fifth grade. And we lived there until I went off to college. So I totally draw on my experiences of going through um, integration, uh, of wondering why, um, you know, I've shockingly learned our town was half African American. Well, where are they? (laughs) Where are the people? And um, the incongruities I saw in treatment, even as a... I would say it started when I was in high school. I started wondering what about things, and I would ask my dad what the sign meant that said we reserve the right to refuse service. And, um, you know, just the whole situation um, troubled me, I guess. And when I went off to college in Texas, I, I said I'll never go back there to Louisiana in my mind. Um, there were just... Mm. just something was wrong to me, even though I still didn't get it. And I'm sure I was not, um, you know, didn't really act and respond in the best ways either. Um, Then um, after I started my writing career, I talked to a woman that was the director of the Museum of Mobile. And she told me a heartbreaking story about living in uh, the Toolman section of Mobile, Alabama, and having a neighbor that was white and she was African-American, mm-hmm. and they were never allowed in each other's yard, but they felt drawn to one another in that way wow. of little girls. And so they stuck toys through a chain-link fence, and they played oh like goodness. that for seven years. Um, wow. the, interestingly, the black girl was um, went to private school at that time, so she would rush out in her little uniform. The other girl would rush out in her little you know, bow-tied dress, 
and they would just only be able to communicate through that fence. And I started thinking of the metaphor of how racism um, and fences and chains, the the hideous chain of slavery, has ruined um, natural friendships that can evolve. You know, people just looking at one another's face and saying, I like her, I think. Yes. And that this, these two brave little girls, uh, when they grew up, they maintained contact, and they're still friends. So oh I just kept thinking, you know, somehow that needs to be in a novel. And that's kind of how I write. Um, I'm inspired by something like that. To me, that's a picture in my mind that's bigger than life. Like just every day seeing those little girls come home and neither parents allowing the other child into their yard. Um, she was clear to tell me that her parents were just as adamant that um, the, a white person not step in their yard. And, you know, mm-hmm. so it was a both-way feeling and um, just the bravery they had and yet the sadness that they couldn't hug or, you know, share a popsicle or, you know, which wouldn't fit through those mm-hmm. silly holes. And uh, anyway, that inspired my story. Um, that set the basis of it, of two little girls meeting in Monroe through a fence and being denied uh, the privilege of playing together, so they were snuck off to a bio. And on the day right, that so this, no, go ahead. Oh, the day that JFK was assassinated, something awful happened to them down at that bio, and they make a blood oath never to tell, but one betrays the other, and and the story goes on. They're grown, and anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that. So it's very much fictionalized, but yet the core of it, I think, remains you know true to that first image of of what happened. Uh, You know, that's really an insidious thing, even though no one was killed or, you know, raped in that yard in Mobile, but the fact that they were kept apart by society. Yeah. uh, So anyway, I wanted my book to explore those themes on both sides, and I actually uh, was so fortunate to have three African-American women that grew up um, in that time frame um, and from Louisiana, and one from Normal, Illinois, because the book has two settings, uh, to share their stories. And so it's kind of a collaboration in that book. And I was very proud of that, that, um, you know, that I feel like I did my best to reflect in that story uh, both sides, you know, with help. And this is Sally Flowers, the two girls, Sally Flowers and Ella Ward for our readers uh, listeners who get what the Bayou saw, you you read about those two little girls, Sally Flowers and Ella Ward. This is the second time you had a Sally in your book, and 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 in the Irish woman's tale, there's Sally Stevens, and in well, what the, the Bayou same. saw, there's Sally. It's, it's the same girl. She she it's the same character, but she's just not married yet. Sally Flowers oh. is her maiden name. So she has moved from her Irish woman, oh. which was true. We moved to normal Illinois. You see how, like you said earlier, you know, authors always draw from, yes. you know, partly at least, from their experiences. And that's the hard part for friends and family. You know, I got a lot of flack from my family about what the bio saw because, you know, they would say, well, you know, our, you know, your dad was a college professor, and but he wasn't like that. And I'd say, I know, I know. <laughs> I just, I pick and choose, you know. And we and people don't are, know really that that's your. They don't know it's your father. I don't think most people know unless you say it. You saying it's a novel. Most right. people wouldn't think to know that if you didn't tell them. Why? Why does Sally recall the event that happened in the bio? It's like 
30, 30 years past. What happens? I don't. I mean, I don't want to give the story mm-hmm. away and tell the readers what the day JFK was shot. What happened there? Mm-hmm. Uh, but why? Why does she recall it thirty years later? Why? Does that he... is a great oh. question. And very early in the book, um, Sally is now a teacher at a community college, <laughs> and you can say da da da. I remember you telling about that. <laughs> and one of her students faces the same crisis that those two little girls face. And she really um, likes the student. She's a very intelligent, uh, though kind of a defiant, chip-on-her-shoulder type of a girl. But um, Sally really likes her. And when she sees her going through the same thing, she knows that she's going to have to come out and share the secret that she's buried because she has to help the student with what she learned. Wow. And I'm just going to say, this is, this, this, uh, uh, an Irish woman's tale. Now, in, in an Irish woman's tale, Sally is trying to forget. Uh, no, Mary is trying to forget this horrible her first memory. She's trying to forget it, and then a woman by the name of Sally Stevens comes into her life and helps her. Mm-hmm. And what the Bayou saw, Sally Flowers is trying to forget what happened in, in here in, in Louisiana. This, mm-hmm. So there's two books about secrets, and I'm seeing this theme kind of mm-hmm. as we go through the interview for off-the-shelf listeners running through uh, your books. Why do you think, Patty, that each of us carries at least one secret, <laughs> even for a little while, at some point in our lives? Why, why do you think we do this? I think that Satan is at work, you know, roaring about, and I think that he loves hidden dark things. And when he can make us feel ashamed, um, by things, especially when they're perpetrated on us, you know, that we really mm-hmm. were not responsible for. Um, uh, but yet if he can make us feel ashamed or um, you know, unwilling to come forward and be honest, that he can start a whole life of deceit. And a lot of people struggle with my second novel, What the Bio Saw, because Sally adopted a behavior of lying which many people do when they uh, face a crisis, like the book discusses um, when they're young. And um, it w- it's just difficult for people to read and admit, you know, that all of us lie in certain ways. And then to explore, why do we lie? Is it because we're mm-hmm. afraid that people wouldn't like us if they knew the truth or we don't want to dredge up things that have been buried? And, uh, you know, I just found it really interesting. And I have one of those kind of secrets that, you know, it probably would have been better to come out, you know, early and get counseling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I had to kind of face it as I wrote this book. And it was so weird because I really hadn't thought of it in years. And I, mm. it's interesting how things are repressed. I think sometimes to protect us, uh, sometimes we do it because we can't face it. Uh, you know, it's complicated. Mm. I don't like you say. You asked me if I'm a psychologist. I wish I were because I'd probably understand. <laughs> but I got fascinated with mainly the secrets that women keep and why they keep them. And every one of my books has a woman yes. that's keeping a secret. Yes, and I think it makes the book. It's sort of a mystery because mm-hmm. readers want to know. Okay, how is this secret? going to impact this the story, the characters, the the main characters, the situation she goes into, her relationships, the people she's in a relationship with. They think they know her, but she's got this secret. But when when as I was do again doing the research for the interview, I thought when you consider that each of us, every human probably has kept a secret mm-hmm. at some point in their life. Mm-hmm. Even from the time we were little little kids, it could be a little minor secret like I took the the slice of cake, and I don't want nobody <laughs> to know because it could be a small thing, but we all do it. 
Uh-huh. We all do it. And some of the secrets, we they they really get weighty and heavy on us. Uh-huh. But when you consider that we all do it, uh, one thing is to, 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 if you face a secret, you can really get to know yourself. So mm-hmm. face it. Even if you just write in a journal, maybe you don't have to go broadcast it to the world, but, mm-hmm. but to begin to, to deal with it yourself, uh, it'll help you to really get to know you because if you try to keep a secret, you're almost hiding a part of yourself. So to, to, to really get to know you and also to realize for our listeners here, uh, it can be helpful to know that you're not the only one who's had a secret. Everybody probably has. Mm-hmm. So then to get to know yourself, to begin to peel away the layers of that secret. So, again, as as Patty Lacey shows in her books, you can also even see how that effort to keep the secret, how it's impacted your life, and how that secret you have might help somebody else as it did in what the Bayou saw. And now I want to talk about your latest book, The Rhythm of Secrets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here we go. Mm-hmm. The Rhythm of Secrets, why did you decide, and I mean this story, all of your stories are so incredibly interesting because of how you, you develop your characters and the things that happen to them. But in The Rhythm of Secrets, Patty, why did you decide to center the story around a pastor's wife? When I read about this one, I thought, oh, my goodness, I, I could, I'm like, I can't believe she went there. Why did you decide to, to make her the main character of the story, well, in the same way as my other stories, um, in the summer of 2007, I picked up the newspaper with my cup of coffee in hand, and soon coffee was dribbling all over, and I didn't even care because I was captured by the story of a woman who had given away her child. Um, she had been sent to a home for unwed mothers. Um, and as I read um, how she never got to touch that child, she only got to hold mm-hmm. that child when she was going from the hospital back to the home uh, where she would give away the baby. And she looked at that cabbie who had um, tears in his eyes. He had you know, great greasy, leathery old skin and uh, nicotine stains, but he knew what she was going through. And she looked at him and she said, through that mirror, the rearview mirror, and said, Mr., will you go really slow? I have one cab ride to give this baby a lifetime of love. (laughs) And I just thought I couldn't get rid of that story. I just kept thinking, having my own two kids, um, what would that be like to, you know, to to face that? And so I I Googled up Sandy Sparazza, whose paper was in the Chicago Trib, uh, whose article, I mean, and um, I asked her uh, if I could... Uh, talk to her and interview her and perhaps write her story and so that once again a real life woman and her dilemma forms the basis of another book of mine and um, I just kind of took I just as you're as you're a writer as you know Denise you know you have to find a conflict so I thought you know how can I make this like the edgiest possible and I already knew the setting was going to be the 60s because I had some stories of Vietnam vets that I wanted to weave into my next novel. I've always been intrigued by how those men suffered uh, when they came home and just that whole uh, difference between returning World War II veterans and and the Vietnam veterans. So I had that on the back burner so to speak that you know to weave that in and so I knew my time period and so um, as I just started investigating i just thought what would be the worst scenario for her to have married someone that would you know be shocked by this news 
And having been raised in a conservative Southern Baptist background, (laughs) I thought, Mm -hmm. let's make him be a very conservative, um, religious right type pastor and that she has not told. And, you know, he has big plans for some things that are going on that I won't, you know, tell Mm -hmm. about right now. But um, she has not told him about her past and her son. So, you know, that to me was just like, you know, explosive and about as much conflict as you could want. So, uh, of course, the son comes on the scene with demands and, you know, she's got to make a decision. You know, is she going to... Uh, help the son that she never got a chance to love or help the husband that she loves, but he doesn't really know her. (laughs) So I just thought that whole idea of, you know, she loves a son she doesn't know and a husband who doesn't know her. Um, You know, what would happen when all this, you know, uh, ran into one another in a big train wreck? And then, too, when you look back over your life in our off-the-shelf listeners, and I'm sure you as well, Patty, we 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 make decisions with the material that we have at the time we make the decision. I, I, like I, I tell my son, if I knew 20 years ago that some things I know today, I would have made different decisions. I, I look back and I say, if I would have known, I, I'll go back, let's say, 24 years ago, some of the things I know today, I would have made different decisions, and my life would have definitely gone in, in a different down a different path. Mm-hmm. But you you can only make a decision if you have to make a decision like right now to do something or you, should I move or not move and of course we consult the Lord but sometimes you say if I had had known known then what I know now mm-hmm. I would have made a different decision so in this story hopefully uh, the husband can come to see hopefully rather than getting caught up in she kept a secret she kept a secret she kept a secret uh, if she had to make that decision today, mm-hmm. she probably would have made a different decision. Right. But, but Denise, based on the, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was just going to say, so much of it is by societal mores. You know, like the little girls. You know, in the chain link fence. Um, I mm-hmm. pray that at least in many areas that that would be totally different today. Um, yeah. The same with the unwed mothers. You know, uh, there's not the stigma today in the the treatment and the um, the denigration that occurs with, with women that are facing this that there was in the 60s. So, you know, you like you said, women have to deal with the, the cards they're given at that time, and sometimes it's a very tight deck. You know, they don't have a lot of mm-hmm. options. And, uh, you know, the society's constantly changing in some ways good and some ways bad. And, you know, in some extent you are... Um, the product of what people forced you to be, you know. So, you know, I try not to be too hard on myself with certain mistakes, even though, you know, like you said, we do think about what it could have been, but a lot of times we, we really might not have had the choices we think we might have. That, yeah, good point. How do you address keeping secrets in your stories, Patty? Do you show do you show your characters if they're keeping secrets as if they're living a lie? Or do you show it as if they're simply concealing information? Because that's going to impact how the reader uh, 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 looks at the character, I would imagine. Right. I think in the uh, what the bio saw, she, she was living a lie, and, and that perhaps was a little distancing to some readers, especially those that don't admit that they've never done that. And maybe they haven't, you know, that they haven't been mm-hmm. – um, 
up front, you know, their whole life. But I think in this book with um, The Rhythm of Secrets, it was much more about her truly trying to protect the people she loved because she knew that the information would hurt her husband. And I think um, this character of all my books so far was the most selfless character and a brave woman really trying to to do what um, would be best for the people she loved. And so she knew that the information would hurt her husband. And as the reader reads the book and goes back into the story, they learn that she really did try to tell him at one time during a real key, passionate scene. And, you know, he insisted it didn't matter. Nothing mattered but, you know, their love. And I know all of us have heard that kind of thing, you know. And <laughs> and I think she accepted it. I mean, she wanted to hear it and she wanted to believe it and and then when he said it and, you know, insisted that she not tell, um, you know, that was just kind of her out. And, and she okay. probably felt it was God's will, you know. Yes. Wow. In the book in the book you're working on now, Reclaiming Lily, this book is a little different to me than your other books, An Irish Woman's Tale with the Bayou Saw and the uh, the story we just just discussed here. And I'm, I'm getting... Um, the Rhythm of Secrets. Now, in the book you're working on now, Reclaiming mm-hmm. Lily, mm-hmm. and we're interviewing for off-the-shelf listeners who just tuned in, Patty Lacey. She is mm-hmm. the author of the books, An Irish Woman's Tale, Reclaiming Lily, which we're getting ready to talk about, with the Bayou Saw and the Rhythm of Secrets. And she's online. I encourage you to visit her online at pattylacey.com, P-A-T-T-I-L-A-C-Y.com. Now, in in Reclaiming Lily, mm-hmm. I said, wow, she's she's sort of taking a different... <laughs> Uh, gone down a different avenue with this book. You go to China. You venture to China in Reclaiming Lily. Why did you decide to write a story that's set in a different culture and country? Well, once again, it's based on that true life story that I can't seem to get out of. And um, my mother um, had uh, went in for a colonoscopy and um, met a Chinese woman that came from the same province where my mother had visited when she and my dad were Chinese missionaries to China years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And they were the first, and this, this is the way they call them, whether, you know, whether we like it or not, they just say white people, that came mm-hmm. to their area because it was a very remote mm-hmm. northern area of China. And when my mother came to from her um, procedure, the doctor was crying and said, you have cancer, I wish I could tell you something different. And um, they bonded, and she said, I'm going to adopt you as my mother because my parents have passed, and, um, you know, I'm going to get you the best treatment that I can because you helped our city. You brought new ideas. And so um, that (laughs) established this connection with me, with this famous Dr. Kai, who called me on a Sunday and told me, once again, a heart-wrenching story of how she and her uh, two sisters, and she was 11 or 12 years old, and post-cultural revolution in China, um, they had to make a vow, a sworn oath with one another of how they were going to help their family survive. And at age 12, she was told by her older sister that she had to be a doctor. And I just could not get over, and she ended up in Harvard Medical School, And then in Tyler, Texas, where my mom lives and where they reunited, um, it just blew me away that at age 12, once again, a young girl would be told, you know, this is what you have to do. <laughs> um, wow, that is and, amazing, isn't it, sir? 
Oh, and the whole basis was you don't mind the sight of blood as much as the other two of us. <laughs> and I thought, you know, wow, that's the real reason to be a doctor. <laughs> but, you know, it turns out she has a gift, you know, of of a healer. And I, I consider there's healers and, you know, divine physicians, and then there's just, you know, people that have an MD degree. And she is one of these women that lives, eats, breathes, you know, her patients. And that wow. is the inspiration for this story, even though it's a very small part of the story. The story mm-hmm. is really about um, a Chinese family forced to give up their child for adoption because otherwise the mother would have to be given a forced abortion, which they do in China even until today. There's some of that. And wow. um, they so they take her and leave her on orphanage steps. And she's adopted by an American pastor and their wife. And then when this Chinese doctor comes to America years later um, and has an urgent message for her daughter, um, what happens when the cultures collide and the women collide? So it's called Reclaiming Lily, and it's the point of, you know, who has the right to a child? Um, If you're born in one country, Mm. does that country still have, you know, and the people there, do they have the right you know, to access to you. Um, And, of course, the American couple is desperately afraid that their troubled teenager will want to go back to China, you know, and leave them. Mm. So it's a conflict of the cultures, of the women, of the ideas, of one is Christian, one is not, um, at the opening of the book. And so, you know, I really enjoyed this story. And once again, I don't know if you've read any Jodi Picot, but it has similar themes to My Sister's Keeper. It's a okay. story about relationships between sisters and and mother daughter. So I think even though it has the Asian uh, main character and the um, Southern pastor's wife, it's it could resonate with all women because of that mother daughter. You know, it really talks about mother daughter relationships and why they get so screwed up and. What do you do when they're really screwed up, and how can you fix them? You know, so I, I'm mm. praying that this book will have um, an impact on women, and uh, you know, of of all cultures that could, you know, want to know, man, you know, I am struggling with my teenager. You know, how, why, and and what, you know, the book explores that kind of thing. Wow, just like Amy Tan's books, it's, uh, oh, that thing yes. is when you when you that, you know, I think great writers deal with human human struggles, and it, it's not so much. Uh, where the person is born, or their age, or their their, their nationality, or their co- color or race, but mm-hmm. if you, when you deal with the human concepts and you really get to the heart of them, things that like uh, in his plays, William Shakespeare did that, and there are other August Wilson in his plays does that. Uh, People Tony of all Morrison. background will understand the story because you're dealing with human things that all humans deal with, uh, and then it just uh, it's a universal theme on your website. PattyLacy.com, P-A-T-T-I-L-A-C-Y.com for our listeners. Uh, as we come down to the last few minutes, and there's so many other questions I wanted to ask you, but on your website you say this about Reclaiming Lily. It goes, Reclaiming Lily contrasts Christian and secular notions of sacrifice, compares cultural versus adoptive ties, and explores the tension between God's ordained plan and the dream of the individual. Now, Patty, I wanted to ask you this question. Mm-hmm. Do you think each of us, each person that's ever lived, living now, has a personal dream that conflicts with the plan God has for our lives. No, I don't. I think that um, in this book, at the first, um, each 
um, each relative, the Chinese um, doctor and the adoptive mother, have in their mind a preconceived notion of how to help this adoptive girl. And that's what I'm talking about. I think when you're a believer, um, as you continue to grow in your faith, you are constantly giving away your own dreams to just let God run the show. At least that's kind of where I am now. I mean, you know, people Mm -hmm. will ask me my dreams, you know, what's your dream? And, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes I say I don't really have any because, you know, God's just kind of driving this train and he's doing okay, you know. (laughs) Like this whole thing with this, you know, me writing that first novel. I never dreamed Mm -hmm. I'd be a writer. Um, I, I did truly think that he whispered to me to try it and that I tried to be obedient and, you know, and that he allowed it to happen. And so if that makes sense, I I don't operate as much now by dreams, you know, my own dreams, because mm-hmm. my own dreams weren't really very um, godly at a lot of points. And, uh, and I have seen that when I give up everything to him, not just my bad habits, you know. I think a lot of times it's not about just, you know, giving up sinful things that we know are sinful, but giving up the good for the better. You know, letting God mm. run your show rather than, you know, maybe what your mom says or your friends or you oh, know, yeah. even what you want to do. You know, it sounds good. And, and especially with the worldview now, I think, is so skewed that if we listen to the world's opinion of what we should do, you know, we should all be chasing the buck. And, um, you know, I think a lot of times God's plans are just better if we can slow down. So, no, I don't think that we all have dreams that you know, conflict with God at all. And I think the more we give him our dreams, you know, the more we'll fulfill his pre preordained purpose for us. I do think he mm-hmm. has a exciting purpose for everyone. You know, you know the plans I have for you, plans to um enrich you and not harm you. And and I believe that. I think he knew us, you know, while we were in our mother's womb and he he designed mm-hmm. us. Uh and the problem is sometimes we don't like, you know, maybe the design. Because maybe, you know, maybe I'm meant to write only four books and no more, and and he has another uh, plan. And you know, here yeah. I'm trying to fight in the tough world of publication, and you know, force things that you know maybe I'm done. Yeah, no, I well, you will, you will see, but yeah, God's God's plan is is I think the thing is to 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 marry the two, you know, to marry mm-hmm. our will with 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 God's will, and then you're at peace. Then you're at peace. What has readers' response been to your three books? Uh, the Rhythm of Secrets and Irish Woman's Tale and What the Bayou Saw. What what have you heard from readers about your, your stories? Um, you know, my stories are at a weird place, uh, Denise. They are kind of on the edge of what a lot of traditional Christian fiction explores. Um, I have great emails from non-Christian readers or Christians that say they don't want Christian books because they're boring. I seem Mm -hmm. to have a real good audience there, but a lot of people don't want to read, you know, some of the things I explore because they're not necessarily a sweet little sit-down-and-get-lost-in-a-beach romance book. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I still feel like that God has called me. You know, he's given me these these specific encounters with real-life women, and he's, he's asked me to write them, and I've done my best. And I try not to worry about the audience as much um, and, mm-hmm. and write for that audience of one. And every time I'll kind of pray for manna, you know, then I will get like a great email from a reader. And, you know, but um, 
I don't know. My books are, I think in some ways my books would be, you know, and, and I've talked about writing for the secular market, but they're just so filled with uh, spiritual themes that, you know, they they just don't mm-hmm. really fit there either. They're kind of stuck. <laughs> they're kind of stuck. Now, I think I think I I think your books are. I wouldn't see them as ba- basically Christian. I haven't read them, but just the research work I've done for them, mm-hmm. uh, they're more like I would say more on a on a literary side. You you deal with human human conditions, and that's what great literature does. I, I when I was doing the research, it didn't stri- strike me that these are like you know only for People who are Christian, I think anybody who's interested in the human condition mm-hmm. uh, could could read and enjoy your your stories because you just you deal with things that are at the again to deal with the human condition. With only four minutes left, I wanted to mm-hmm. ask you because I like to leave our listeners with something that they can take away. Who are particularly those who are trying to get their own uh, writing careers going? Something that you have done. What advice, Patty, would you give to an off the shelf listener? who's trying to land a book publisher, something that they might think is, like, absolutely impossible? You know, Denise, uh, my advice is different from a lot of people's. I would tell them first to read the masters like crazy. Um, My studies in in my master's level were African-American literature. So, of course, I love Toni Morrison and um, uh, Gail Jones and a lot of readers like that. But go back, like you hinted earlier, to Shakespeare. Go back to some of the... European and the great American writers, Wallace Stegner, you know, read, 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 and then get good uh, writing books and work. You know, a lot of them have workbooks. And until you have people, you know, writing friends saying, wow, this is so fabulous, it has to get published, you know, I would avoid all the game of, you know, going to conferences and and, and getting, you know, editors and then trying to, you know, find an agent. Because it is really hard and you need to have that work, you know, as the best it can be. I did benefit greatly from hiring a, an editor to edit my work before I sent it out. Um, it was very expensive. It was $800, I think. But I think it gained me like two years of study, you know, in writing. To I, I, I cannot say editor. that enough. Oh my yeah, goodness. I mean, I just think that's huge. And then, you know, to just keep writing for God, because I feel like when we get to heaven one day, you know, he may ask you like that um, parable of the talents, you know, why didn't you write that? And I'd hate to say, mm. well, I didn't think it'd get published or, you know, no one was interested, so I quit. Um, because he told me one day, you know, isn't it enough that just I read it? And that really kind of wow. stuck my crawl, like, you know, yeah. Like any any artist, you know, do you do your art just because you expect reward? Then that's probably not, you know, a good reason. We know painters that don't worry about that or, um, you know, singers that aren't professional that still um, sing to the Lord in worship and perhaps at their church. And so it's a hard thing to do when you're pressured with, you know, sell and figures. Mm-hmm. But if if your readers can stay grounded, I just beg you to – to pursue making your craft the the best that you can. And Colossians 3.23 says, Do all you do as if for the Lord, not for men. So, you mm-hmm. know, write that book for him and make it the best you can for him and then see where he takes it. Wow. We we have thank you so much, Patty. Uh, I thank you for those, those encouraging and inspirational, uplifting words that you share with us. We have been, and we're coming down to the last minute of today's show, we have been... Uh, uh, holding a wonderful discussion with Patty Lacey. She is author of the books 
An Irish Woman's Tale, Reclaiming Lily with the Bayou Saw and the Rhythm of Secrets. Patty Lacey is online. Please visit her and support her at P-A-T-T-I-L-A-C-Y.com. Again, that's P-A-T-T-I-L-A-C-Y.com. Her book sounds so incredibly interesting. I think I might go over and get a, a one of your books today. Oh. I have to sit down and think. Um, I'm not sure which one I get. Well, why don't I send you one? Which one would you like? No, I, no, I want to purchase one. I want to support oh. you. Probably, maybe, uh, maybe reclaiming Lily. But anyway, I encourage our listeners to support Patty Lacey again. P a t t i l a c y dot com. Please come back and join us again. Uh, I'll be on this Friday with LaShonda Jones at nine o'clock in the evening, and then on Saturday the sixteenth at eleven. We will be back with another uh, special guest, another author here on Off the Shelf. Thank you for supporting us, for tuning in. Please tell your family, your friends, your colleagues, everybody you know to tune in to Off the Shelf Saturdays, 11 o'clock, and this Friday at 9 p.m. We normally don't have a Friday show, but we are going to have one, LaShonda Jones, this Friday at 9, and we'll also be back on Saturday at 11 o'clock. Thank you, Patty. Please go support her. PattyLacy.com. As always, remember you're so truly loved, so valued, and so blessed. Go out and create a wonderful day for yourself. Bye for now. Patty, I'll shoot you an email. Okay. Thank you so much, Denise. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.